Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Hey, it's 12.03 on 2.22.22, Tuesday afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. It's Russia's power over energy in Europe coming to the forefront as its military forces move into Ukraine. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, today's data includes reports on consumer confidence and home prices. We welcome in Bob Bruska, who is the chief economist with Fact and Opinion Economics based in New York. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Before we talk about consumer Consumer confidence. Let's talk about the Case-Shiller Home Price Index, telling us uh, what uh, many economists have already said that uh, home prices uh, shot up by uh, double digits in 2021, up 18.8 percent. Yeah, they did. Um, home prices have been very strong. They've been pushed up by uh, demand uh, in the wake of the pandemic, and people's basically taking greater interest in their homes. And in these low uh, low mortgage rates, of course, the low mortgage rate effect is starting to uh, unwind. Uh, mortgage rates are starting to rise, and uh, that's going to create a different situation in housing than the one we've been used to. Because uh, as mortgage rates rise, it's going to put downward pressure on housing affordability, and that in turn will play out as more downward pressure on home prices. All uh, regions of the country benefited from this, but it was strongest in the South and Southeast. Is that just goes to show you the uh, the old real estate adage still applies? It's location, location, location. Yes, that and uh, location. And if, for, if you're not buying or selling a home, let's just say you have a home, you have no plans of moving anytime soon. Uh, does this also mean that uh, homeowners are taking advantage of that? At least their net worth on paper has been bumped up quite a bit. It, you know, it's not clear how that works. Um, you look at the economic studies and there really isn't a great deal of increase in consumer spending when people have an increase in wealth in terms of the increase in their house. Now, we all know stories about people who have refined and unlocked the value on their house and used it to help pay for a medical emergency or for college education or something like that. But as a general rule, um, it doesn't increase people's consumption. It does increase their wealth. And we do think that wealth is related to consumption, but people aren't as likely to spend the wealth that accumulates in their house. And then when it comes to consumer confidence, uh, inflation continues to weigh down on how Americans feel about the economy, but uh, how they feel and how they spend uh, tell do two different stories. And it sounds like the American consumer is spending with his, is uh, that their confidence is being reflected with his or her wallet. Uh, yeah, the, the, the spending data are still uh, pretty solid and we'll see if that keeps up. You know, there was a, a lot of stuffing of our piggy banks that occurred in the uh in the pandemic period, and a lot of that money wasn't spent, so people do have elevated savings that they can tap if they want to continue to support savings that may not be supported by their current income. So again, we're going to have to watch for the rest of this year and see how it plays out, but uh, consumer confidence a little bit lower uh, on the month, and um, the assessment of the present situation improved very slightly, but expectations ticked lower again. And, you know, the expectations have only been weaker than this about a third of the time. So this is a pretty weak expectations number. And, and we're going to have to deal with today's news, which uh, is probably going to have the president uh, admitting that this actually is an invasion. I don't know how you don't call this an invasion, but uh, that's coming up. And I think that we're going to have to deal with this new reality that is going to be a little bit more difficult for the economy to swallow. 
Keep it right here. President Biden will be addressing the nation from the White House. You will hear that live right here on WBBM. Thanks for joining us. Bob Bruska, chief economist, fact and opinion economics based in New York. Coming up, how the turmoil in Ukraine could impact European and world energy supplies. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Germany is halting approval of the gas pipeline known as Nord Stream 2 due to Russia's actions in Ukraine. Let's discuss the implications of the move with Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst with the Price Group based in Chicago. Phil, thanks for joining us today. This whole situation calls to mind uh, an old commercial for Illinois Bell that said, we're all connected. And uh, that is definitely the case when it comes to uh, the movement of oil and natural gas, especially across the world, but especially in Europe. Uh, They're all connected and uh, everybody's involved in this international crisis, whether they want to or not. You're absolutely right. You know, it's almost like, you know, if you have a accident on the Stevenson Expressway, you're still going to have a backup maybe on the Dan Ryan or somewhere else uh, because we're all interconnected. And, and energy really is a global market, not so much natural gas as oil, but when you have a major disruption in one part of the globe and there's not a lot of extra supply out there, uh, that impact is going to be felt across the globe. And because of a uh, the potential risk of a war in Europe, that could be the biggest supply shock we've seen in the oil market since the 1970s. So there's a lot of risk here of much higher prices. It is very interesting to note that uh, a lot of the oil and gas pipelines out of Russia move through Ukraine. So if that supply is disrupted, not only does it uh, disrupt the world markets and cause an increase in the price of gas here, but uh, also it costs Ukraine in the form of transmission fees because they got a fee for carrying that oil and gas across their territory. And I think you hit the nail on the head. That's one of the reasons why, you know, Vladimir Putin lusts after after the Ukraine, because he believes that, you know, energy is a big part of this. And when they were part of the Soviet Union, those pipelines used to be Soviet. Russia has the gas. Ukraine has the pipelines. That's the way things were. And, and they've, there's been a lot of disputes over pipeline fees, cost of doing business, all of that. You're absolutely right. But think of this. For years, we have known that Russia has not been a reliable supplier to the Ukraine and to Europe. And Germany goes ahead with this pipeline, even though they know that Vladimir Putin can get up to these goofy kind of tricks and cut off supply. And and 40 percent of Europe's natural gas supply comes from Russia with oil and gas. And and if Russia decides to turn off the spigot, they're going to have big problems. And that is the uh, leverage that uh, Russia held over Europe, and that was part of the big debate that had been going on in the run-up to what now appears to be an invasion of Ukraine. Uh, How hard would Russia really, how hard would Europe and NATO actually push Russia because they did have that energy leverage? I think that's as that's why it got to this point, because they were fearful of how Vladimir Putin would respond. So they never took a really hard line on him, right? Though there's been warning signs for years, uh, the Trump administration was very vocal in its opposition to Germany becoming more dependent on, on Russia for supply. They're saying, hey, this is crazy, guys. We have natural gas here in the U.S. We'll sign long-term contracts. But the uh, Germans just seem to be very focused on, on, on working with Russia. And at the same time, this is Germany that decided to close all its nuclear power plants, you know, close down oil fields, become more green. And they thought, well, we won't have a problem. We'll just 
you know, call our buddy Vladimir Putin for supplies. Well, guess guess how that's working for him. Well, thanks for joining us, Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst with the Price Group based in Chicago. Coming up next on this Travel Tuesday, as COVID cases drop, airline passenger counts are taking off. Compounding your interest with an economy of words. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's Travel Tuesday, and the latest numbers from the Transportation Security Administration shows airports were very busy this past weekend, with the most passengers moving through since the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Let's talk about air travel trends with Joe Schwederman, Professor of Public Services and Director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Um, Was this something the airlines were expecting, that uh, as Omicron faded from view, uh, people would uh, hop on the nearest flight and go to the closest place they could find? I think it was a pleasant surprise. You know, the, the story with the airlines has been we had a strong Christmas season because the pandemic was easing enough. And then things really dropped off in early January. And that caused a bit of a, a scare among the airlines that people were quite fickle about what kind of trips. And so this present day numbers are really encouraging. It was the uh, highest, you know, it's, uh, almost as high as pre-pandemic, 7.5% down. And notably, it's the first time I've heard airline executives say some routes uh, outside just the leisure routes, maybe to Florida and so forth, are above pre-pandemic. And that's uh, that's uh, good news, certainly. And Joel, last week we were uh, talking about how uh, airlines are constantly reaccommodating people because uh, trying to hit this uh, post-pandemic uh, demand level with the right number of flights, the right number of pilots to make sure that uh, the, the route structures are still in place is a constantly shifting target. And the end result is a lot of passengers get emails from their airline saying that uh, your air, the, the reservation you made back in October for your flight in April has been changed you know, three or four times. So does this mean that passengers could expect their old flights to come back? It certainly is good news. Those flights that were moved may not come back, but it means the airlines uh, are out of the mode of throwing schedules out and then pulling them back when they see demand isn't there. And that's what happened uh, in much of January to the anger of of many consumers. And so I think uh, we'll see that settle down. But it is a new reality for airlines that they're predicting in the middle of a windstorm, not knowing where people are going to go. Uh, the new scare for airlines is just the dramatic rise in fuel costs just in the last two weeks. That adds a whole new wrinkle to airlines, uh, the fares they're going to charge. Yeah, it does seem like uh, when airlines uh, shut down and uh, went into hibernation in 2020, it was probably with the expectation that maybe uh, they wouldn't be back to their pre-pandemic footing until 23 or 24 at the very best. And now it's happening in 2022. Uh, when jet fuel prices went through the floor, did a lot of airlines uh, lock in um, jet fuel contracts or were they just simply in survival mode at that time? Most were in survival mode. You know, Southwest has famously uh, been quite good at locking in fares, but there's a uh, fuel price, but there's certainly a downside to that, as you can guess wrong, too. And fuel prices went way down in the pre, you know, in the pandemic, and that led to some real bargains. I think what we're seeing now, there is a report came out last week that business travel appears poised to recover faster than we thought. So that's... Uh, the first uh, significant study that said that it may not be 2024 before business travels back. So for the airlines, it really hinges on not just the leisure business being strong, but you know those international trips and those business trips, and we'll have to wait and see how fast that comes back. 
Thanks for joining us, Joe Schwederman, Professor of Public Services and Director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul University, based in Chicago. Still ahead on this Travel Tuesday, some major cruise lines are ditching mask requirements. This is Chicago's all-news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon, I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Russian lawmakers have authorized President Vladimir Putin to use military force outside the country. The latest coming up in a special report from CBS News. The latest reports from Macy's and Home Depot show that retailers are in good shape. In Travel Tuesday, several leading clues operators are relaxing their mask rules. WBBM business, the markets are lower. The Dow is down 503 points. The Nasdaq is down 209. And the S&P 500 is down 54. AccuWeather says rain moving out. Uh, Could see a stray shower this afternoon. A high today of 39, but temperatures falling. It's 1231. CBS News special report. President Biden is set to deliver an update from the White House on Ukraine as the U.S. and its allies pledge new sanctions over Russia's latest aggression against its neighbor. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg after an extraordinary meeting of the alliance today. We urge Russia in the strongest possible terms to choose the path of diplomacy. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the UK would slap sanctions on five Russian banks and three wealthy individuals. By denying Ukraine's legitimacy as a state and presenting its very existence as a mortal threat to Russia, Putin is establishing the pretext for a full-scale offensive. As for the Russians, CBS's Mary Eloshana is there and says they see sanctions this way. The official line of Russian officials so far has been that sanctions don't really scare them. Again, President Biden is set to speak soon on all these issues. CBS News special report. I'm Matt Piper. And you will hear President Biden's remarks on Russia and Ukraine live on WBBM as they happen. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are in the red. We're joined by Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager with Smart Portfolios based in San Diego. The website macrotides.com. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Before Ukraine and Russia and the international tensions they wrought uh, went to the front burner, there was a great deal of discussion uh, around the interest rate debate over uh, just how overvalued uh, the stock market was as a result of that uh, very generous monetary policy post-COVID. With substantial losses today, last week, and going to the beginning of 2022, um, has the the, the market given back that excess value, or is there still some, uh, some, some room to fall? Well, I go with the latter, Rob, that I think there's more downside coming. Uh, As you may remember, back in December in interviews, my expectation was that we would see a 10 to 15 percent correction in the first quarter as monetary shifted to being far less accommodative. And that process really hasn't really begun yet from the Fed's point of view. I think the Fed will raise the Fed funds rate. 25 basis points, uh, at least at the March, May, and June meeting. Um, And I think the other key thing, Rob, is that the Fed is going to be adjusting its balance sheet rather than aggressively raising rates. From a technical standpoint, to your question, the initial decline on the S&P went from 48.18 down to 42.23, 595 points. It then rallied to 45.95. You subtract 595 from that. 
and that comes up with a target of 4,000 if the two legs, the two declines are equal. So that has been my bias, that at a minimum we would see the S&P drop below 42.23, and based on the top of the recent rally, it now projects a guess of about 4,000 on the S&P. So, yeah, more downside is coming in my view. How does volatility, though, from uh, a, 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 an international event such as Russia invading Ukraine causing a, a, a rather substantial jump in the price of oil and disrupting the prices of other natural resources, exports, food exports, metals, um, how does that change the, uh, the Fed calculus uh, now that you have this uh, external shock or what could, pen- could potentially be an external shock. Would they back off on the pace of uh, interest rate hikes? Uh, This is a really terrific question, Rob, Um, because again, monetary policy through raising interest rates isn't going to increase computer chips, isn't going to bring the price of oil down, isn't going to solve the problems at the port. So to some extent, I wrote this uh, about three months ago, that the Fed was kind of impotent relative to the problems and some of the drivers of inflation. So I think it really comes down to the severity of the increase in oil and energy prices, how long they last. I mean, don't forget, uh, gasoline prices were up 40% year over year before all of this came to pass. So my take is I think the Fed proceeds at least certainly in March and probably in May with quarter point increases and will, again, defer toward shrinking its balance sheet. Uh, rather than raising rates, because rates are are a blunt instrument. They hurt the economy overall, where shrinking its balance sheet won't have the same negative economic impact. So that's another reason why, A, no 50 basis point hikes are coming, and I think the Fed will lean more on the balance sheet reduction than uh, the blunt interest uh, of interest rate hikes. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Jim Welsh, macro strategist, portfolio manager, Smart Portfolios, based in San Diego, California. You can find him online at macrotides.com. Up next in Travel Tuesday, cruise companies are dropping mask requirements for passengers. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Travel Tuesday, and several of the world's leading cruise lines are revising their mask policies. Let's get the latest from Hannah Sampson, travel writer with the Washington Post. Hannah, thank you for joining us today. Uh, the three biggies, or at least three of the big ones, are revising their mask policies, but uh, there are some uh, rules associated with that. Tell us about them. They are. So the, the big ones are Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, and Carnival Cruise Line. And um, they're all saying that either March 1st or, or even before that, they're going to be recommending masks, but not requiring them uh, as long as people are vaccinated. Um, so that's the fine print. But, but really, you, you need to be vaccinated in order to take a cruise still. So uh, if you're taking a cruise, you, you should prepare to be vaccinated and to wear a mask or not as you see fit for yourself. And uh, when it comes to uh, uh, during the boarding process, are they still testing passengers as they get on the ship? And uh, what is the policy for uh, children who may not be vaccine eligible? Right. So um, you really will need to have a test before you board. uh, But that is mostly going to be on the onus is really going to be on the traveler for the most part. So you shouldn't expect to go to support and take a test there. You should have that test done yourself within a couple of days of boarding. For kids who aren't eligible for vaccines, so kids under five, uh, 
there's a new change to the CDC guidelines, which says, you know, they can they can sail, they can cruise. And those young, young kids, um, their unvaccinated status won't really count for the vaccination status of the ship itself. It's it's a lot of fine print and very nuanced, but um, it seems important to the cruise lines that small kids will be allowed to sail and won't need to have any kind of exemption because they're not vaccinated. And then what about uh, some of the operators? Are they going to uh, announce revised policies soon, or are they going to watch uh, the big three and see how things go before they change their own rules? I mean, I'm thinking like the Disney Cruise Line. Yeah, you know, I'm not even sure what Disney has done, but they've been actually extremely um, cautious in their mask and vaccination policies. So if they haven't, uh, if they haven't already announced anything about their masks, I, I would expect them to do so soon. Um, but I would also expect them to continue to be cautious. And when we talk about the big three lines, Norwegian Royal and Carnival, they're owned by bigger companies that own fellow cruise lines. So on, obviously what you see at one of these uh, one of these lines that are owned by a big corporation, you typically see in their sister lines as well. Uh, so, so these policies, I would expect them to be pretty standard throughout the industry wherever somebody is going to cruise. Are things settling down in the cruise space now that these ships were allowed to uh, sail once again? Because there, there have been a number of stories of people, uh, you leave port and you thought you had one Caribbean itinerary, and then they say, well, guess what? We're going to the other Caribbean itinerary uh, because of COVID restrictions. Uh, is that level of disruption and that need to be very nimble as a traveler, uh, is that still necessary? Necessary, or are things going to kind of settle down as spring turns into summer? You know, I would always, always advise people to be flexible. But uh, the Omicron surge was forcing a lot of those changes, and that really has calmed down significantly, both on land and on ships. So we're not seeing those same kind of stories of disruption as we were kind of over Christmas and early January. But as you think about what happens in the summer, um, people are cruising in the Caribbean, especially, and you have storms popping up everywhere. So you're going to need to keep that same flexible attitude, um, but for different reasons, because if you're cruising somewhere with a hurricane, you're going to go somewhere else. Well, Hannah, they file that under good old fashioned problems, uh, <laughs> old, old school problems, pre, pre right. 2019 problems. Uh, thank you for joining us. Hannah Sampson, travel writer with The Washington Post. Join us at this time tomorrow for Personal Finance Wednesday and still to come Macy's and Home Depot beat the street with their latest earnings report. Information to make cash and save cash. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Home Depot and Macy's are out with quarterly reports. The top analyst estimates were joined now by Jan Rogers Niffen, CEO J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide, based in New York. Jan, thanks for joining us today. When it comes to uh, Macy's fourth quarter, there's uh, it's good news up and down. It was amazing. I mean, they had great sales. They had great earnings. And they had great digital sales online. They're up to, what, 39% of their businesses coming through a digital sale. Everything you wanted to see happened. Pretty much true for Home Depot, too. They were really, really strong. And that side of the business is supposed to be starting to slow down. 
And what's interesting is that Macy's really seems like uh, a state-of-the-art 21st century retailer, and it's actually uh, winning back customers who went over to uh, higher-end stores like Nordstrom or to Target or from the outlet stores. I mean, they're really winning people back from all sorts of sectors of the uh, retail marketplace. Yeah, it's really interesting. When you look at the big companies that are well-capitalized, that had a big store base that had great teams for logistics and all the things you have to have to survive when the stuff that's going on right now is going on, they benefited. And Macy's is one of those. I mean, you know, there was a time when being a big department store was not an advantage, but when you're the only big department store and you execute pretty well, it is a big advantage. Their average unit retail was up over 11 or 11 and a half percent in the fourth quarter. That's not all inflation. Some of it is, but you're right. They're taking back better goods from other retailers and selling them to the consumer. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big change for a company like Macy's, and they're executing it really, really well. But I still think they got a lot of help from the fact that 50,000 regular stores went out of business. The mom and pops are all gone. And looking at some of the other department stores that are either kind of shells of what they once were or are just simply have gone into the that great shopping mall in the sky, uh, were, were the, the Sears of the world, was that capable of doing what Macy's is doing now? No, and Penny's isn't either. And that would have been really hard because both of them were, were over-levered, as you know, as they got to where they were. They, they really didn't have the wherewithal to do that. But, I mean, look at Dillard's. They blew the doors off the store, the, the stores this quarter, too. They're not a big online business. But, man, they had great store sales, and they turned in great numbers. And it's another case where they're not big like Macy's, but they're very well capitalized. They didn't do anything crazy during the pandemic. They maintained their business base, and they had great top line and great earnings. And so, you know, it was a good time to be a department store because apparel, accessories, shoes, and jewelry sold like crazy in the fourth quarter. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Jan Rogers Niffin, CEO, J. Rogers Niffin Worldwide, based in New York. You'll find past programs and later today a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app.